Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to the podcast. This is Molly. And I'm Kristen. Kristen, let's start off with an email we got from one of our listeners who suggested a topic. Okay. Uh, the email is from Deanna, and she requested the topic of arranged marriages. Okay. And I just want to read a few lines of her email. Uh, the topic came to her mind because she saw a movie called Arranged, and it got her to thinking about the process of how parents will arrange marriages for their children. She's heard statistics that say arranged marriages have a lower rate of divorce than love marriages. And my initial reaction, she writes, was that those couples couldn't be happy. They just didn't divorce because the cultures that have arranged marriages also don't believe in divorce. But statistics aside, the more I think about the process of an arranged marriage, the more that it is starting to seem like a healthy way to approach marriage. Your family screens potential partners and has semi-formal get-togethers in which you all meet and discuss the hard facts that many couples are too shy or ignorant to ask about. And bam, you're done. You've got the finances in line. You know, like, what the person wants. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think she lays out sort of an interesting, you know, comparison. Is it is it something that people get trapped in because they can't divorce in their culture? Or is it actually a, a pretty decent way to get to know someone? Yeah, so we thought that we would examine this idea of whether you should let your parents pick your partner based on, I would say, the number one country we probably think of when we talk about arranged marriage, and that would be India. Right. Um, and to start off with, the idea of arranged marriage, and specifically Hindu culture in India, goes way, way back, and it's derived from laws interpreted in the Dharma Shastras, which were a collection of rules and conducts for society dating back to 4,000 BC. And it basically maintained that marriage is a duty and a sacrament required of all human beings for the well-being of your community. Mm-hmm. And... Um, uh, so the source that we found from Emory University says that arranged marriages really became part of the Indian cultural fabric around the 4th century. So no wonder we associate the practice with India if it's been around that long. Yes. Uh, it serves very specific purposes in that society, according to this Emory source. And, you know, if you think about India, you're also probably thinking about the caste system, mm-hmm. how there are certain social classes with which you cannot basically mingle uh, if you're from a different one. And so arranged marriages, you know, pretty bluntly serve to make sure that those castes don't mix because your parents are likely going to pick someone who is from the same caste. And then it also gives... Um, you a chance to preserve your ancestral line gives you an opportunity to strengthen kinship bonds because you know you make sure that India is also very much uh, based on this joint family system, very strong um, family groups, and it also allows for consolidation and extension of family property because way back in the day, uh, women could not inherit any property, and so. By arranging these marriages, uh, parents could ensure that they could pass their property along to their sons, and it kind of protected their assets. So I think from our modern-day perspective, um, we, we could see how this might seem, you know, like a like such a backwards idea because mm-hmm. it's basically upper-class families ensuring that other, you know, that their their kids marry into other upper-class families. Um, you know, it, it, it does seem a little bit weird. Well, yeah, I mean, because we might idealize this idea of finding 
finding someone, falling in love, and then spending the rest of our lives together. But Molly, I gotta say, um, if you look at these seven criteria that would that matchmakers, these Indian matchmakers would follow, it kind of reminds me of some of the elements of, say, online dating today, where you're able to put in exact qualities that you want another person and hopefully get your your true love match. Your true love match. And uh, these criteria would include, of course, the cast and then the social structure, moral value compatibility. Hello, eHarmony.com. Academic compatibility. I'm sure there's some site like that. Occupational compatibility, family's moral history, and my favorite, horoscope compatibility. Mm-hmm. So it's looking at these things from all all different angles. They're not just, you know, just pulling pulling one girl and then, you know, pointing to a dude and saying, make it happen. Mm -hmm. They really were going through. And they would also make sure that they were separated enough geographically that there wouldn't be intersecting familial lines. So you start to get a little bit of inbreeding going on. They're very careful about all this. Right. But, you know, if you want to look at it again from a Western perspective, which I'm not saying is the way we should look at it, but, you know, I bet a lot of our listeners are thinking, Knowing horoscope compatibility is all very well and good, but the fact of the matter is, is that parents would often keep their children out of the loop, and you'd only know mm-hmm. that you were, you know, being evaluated by a matchmaker in this way when you started to get letters from your potential husband's father. Which, you know, is that a good way to do it? Yeah. I mean, and of course, there are also issues that we could get into, such as the age of specifically the girls who would be arranged in these marriages. It uh, it wasn't until the Child Re- the Marriage Restraint Act of 1929 to 1978 that the legal age of marriage was restricted to 18 for females, because a lot of times they would uh, be matched up when they were very early in puberty, mm-hmm. and they would not necessarily con- consummate the marriage until a number of years later, but they would move into their in-laws' family and sort of be guess, groomed for being a wife. Um, so that might be a little more, more questionable. Other, yeah, and the other tricky thing is tying uh, your child to a dowry, which is the exchange of goods, you know, money, and it's something that the, the wife brings into the marriage, and some families will negotiate a higher dowry, a lower dowry, based on what they think woman is worth. And, you know, we discussed this in Mail Order Brides. As, as feminists, it's hard to have, you know, a g- great feeling about tying a woman to, you know, a certain, you know, physical object. Is that being her worth? Um, and, you know, the article from Emory does cite that, you know, it was to some extent a sign of the family's self-esteem. They mm-hmm. said we can afford to give you all this land because our daughter is so worthy. Right. I mean, this whole concept is kind of predicated on the idea of women as property, and for instance, um, there's a paper we found called I Will Speak Out um, about, it was, it was a lot of interviews with women who were in arranged marriages, and she points out that um, wife, the word wife, was often used interchangeably with the word household. So, you know, this isn't, from, yes, a westernized feminist perspective, this isn't exactly an enlightened idea, mm-hmm. but I think that it's worth looking at, especially if we go back and look at the roots of Western marriage, which we will do later on. But now I think, Molly, it would be a good time to kind of fast forward because arranged marriage has evolved a lot Mm -hmm. in India. And because of globalization and industrialization in India, it's also given way to a rise in so-called love marriages, which would be the kind of typical falling in love, dating, meeting, what have you, and then getting married set up 
that we think of today. Right. I think that, you know, the West has had a tremendous influence on India. They see that that's sort of the, you know, for lack of a better word, let's say the American way of getting married. You meet someone in very in a cute way, a meet cute, mm-hmm. um, and you have a bond that's emotional, physical, spiritual. Everything's perfect, and that person will be your spouse. And that has undoubtedly affected Indian culture. So today, I think that that uh, influence has led to a very interesting mix of arranged marriages that are sometimes based on love, mm-hmm. flat out love marriages, as we're going to call them, absent of any sort of parental approval. And the remaining old system of just arranged marriage is pure and simple. And so to talk about this, I think a great place to start is this Newsweek article from 2008 by Jason Overdorf that Molly and I found, which was a really great resource with a lot of good statistics that kind of touches on a lot of these different aspects of arranged marriage and love marriage in India today. So we're going to refer to it a lot. So to start off with, according to research from the University of Chicago, love marriages now account for about 10% of urban weddings, and then an additional 19% of those surveyed uh, first had to get their parents' approval. They met on their own, but they then had to get their parents' approval to seal the deal. And not unlike in the United States, the Internet is playing a huge part in this because now instead of, you know, some, you know, one person's father writing a, a letter to another person's father. Couples can see each other on the internet. The fathers could screen people on the internet. So internet matchmaking is becoming a huge deal in India. Uh, the revenue of these online matchmakers has doubled, uh, to about 35 million in 2007 compared to just 15 million in 2006. And 12 million Indians, which is about half the country's internet users, according to Oberdorf, are using these matrimonial sites. Yeah, and a lot of these matrimonial sites are also divided by caste. So you can go to shoddy.com if you are from that specific caste, and you will know right then that you are going to hopefully be meeting other men and women from that specific caste. So there are all sorts of these online online matchmaking sites that have become really popular. But at the same time that we have this shift in, in marriage, we think it might be a, a great thing from our Western perspective of, oh, yay, we're, you know, we're letting, letting love in more, just letting our hearts guide our decisions. But at the same time, this has been coupled with a rise in divorce rates mm-hmm. as well. Um, demographers say that divorce rates doubled from about 7% in 1991 to 2001 when the latest census was taken. And that's still extremely low, but like our listener pointed out, um, in the email that she sent, uh, lower divorce rates are associated with arranged marriages. And I thought it was interesting, too, that it's not necessarily uh, emancipated women who are getting divorced and leaving their husbands. A lot of times it's also the men who are fed up with these these women who don't want to sit at home and just take care of the house and be a good wife, perform her wifely duties. And they're just, you know, they're done with it. Shades of our mail order bride podcast. The difference being that this is taking place in India where because arranged marriage has had such a hold on the society, divorce is such a new phenomenon that actually divorce courts aren't really set up that well. And the process of getting a divorce in India can take years and years. So it's not like just because all of a sudden they can have a love marriage, they can have a nice, quick and easy divorce. Yeah, according to this Newsweek article, it could take up to 15 years to process a divorce if one of the spouse objects. Yikes. I would just give up and run away, probably. (laughs) Speaking of running away, Kristen, let's say that you've got some parents who have decided that you're going to marry a nice boy within your cast. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, your horoscopes match out. 
But despite all these, you know, reasonable economic concerns being worked out for you and he's got your parental approval, you have fallen in love with a bad boy from the wrong side of the tracks. He's from another cast. I think that you're referring to eloping, Molly. Eloping. And this is becoming a huge thing in India because, I mean, if you see how, you know, our culture values just following your heart, what's what's to stop you from running away with the one you love, you know, not thinking of the consequences, just getting married for the sake of love? Yeah, and those themes are, themes are starting to crop up in more in Indian popular culture as well, in Bollywood films. And uh, because this caste system is becoming... A little more flexible because there are more, uh, there are actually quotas that have been opened up for lower castes in education and government jobs. Women are making a lot more money. It's shaking up this whole social structure. And I believe the Indian courts even began offering monetary incentives for intercaste marriages as in an effort to start breaking down, um, the, the social structure even more, but it can have very violent effects. As I was about to say, would, have you ever heard of a, a peaceful societal change taking place of such magnitude? No. No, and that's, and it's not happening in India. It's still a very, you know, there are people who are stuck in their ways and aren't willing to accept that their children might want to marry someone from a different caste. So let's say Kristen does run off with a boy from a lower caste. There's a very troubling trend in India, particularly in one caste known as the Jot caste. Uh, in Newsweek, it says uh, it's located in rural Haryana, Punjab, and Uttar Pradesh, uh, where couples who elope that are part of different castes are murdered, usually both of them. Yeah, there have been um, a number of pretty tragic stories about uh, these couples trying to run away, and they can even, in some instances, try to get police protection, but at some point um, they will be lynched or just murdered in the middle of the night. And uh, they think a lot of this has to do with these village rulers, because a lot of these, these are in large urban areas. These are in smaller, remote villages um, that are oftentimes ruled by groups of village elders called the Kap Panchayat. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Um, and they're basically the village patriarchs who do not want to see intercaste marriages at all. And uh, they don't necessarily order the killings outright, but at the same time, they kind of sound like the mob. They just sort of make things happen. That's what it sounds like. And it goes back to that thing you had talked about earlier when the matchmaker's criteria was that they wouldn't be from nearby locations. Mm -hmm. And so basically two people who answer to that same group uh, are not allowed to marry. And if they do marry, then, you know, like, like Kristen said, these stories are tragic. There was one that we were reading about where, you know, basically a, a lovesick boy just wrote the girl he liked a letter. And because she was from uh, the different cast and, you know, lived in the wrong town, he was killed. So it's it's very troubling um, to see how this sort of clash of the cultures is causing so much violence. And a lot of times, too, if a girl runs away with a boy and they are eventually stopped, you know, and separated, they will force the girl into saying that she was kidnapped or raped by the boy. And then the boy will then be then be punished somehow. So they're kind of doing everything in their power to stop these matches. And I think in one of these small villages, one of the articles we found reported that there had been five of these types of murders just in one month. Mm -hmm. It had become so widespread. And this isn't just limited to small villages in India. It's also happened some in the United States 
as well. I think it was somewhere in Chicago, I want to say. A father ended up murdering his daughter after she had married a guy who was outside of their caste. Mm Mm-hmm. So Newsweek makes the argument that because uh, society still puts so many obstacles on marriages that aren't arranged, many young people still go the arranged marriage route, but they do get to play a greater role in the process. Uh, Newsweek estimates that probably about 40% of the online profiles are written by the actual person who is being uh, considered marriageable. And the interesting thing about this is that there might be an economic incentive to allowing a little more leeway with the actual boys and girls, men and women, choosing their partner. Not necessarily, you know, eliminating all sorts of parental approval, but um, just consider this. The Atlantic magazine reported on a study from the University of Chicago that found that when upper-class middle Indian parents help selected a wife for their son, he's 11% less likely to marry a college-educated woman and nearly 20% less likely to marry a working woman than is a comparable man who enters into a, quote, love marriage. And that's also independent of his parents' wishes. And furthermore, these this can also have benefits for the woman, not surprisingly, because studies also show that the more education and earning power a woman enjoys and the more control she exercises in the family. Because a lot of times with these traditional arranged marriages in India, because of their joint family system, the woman will be brought into the family and is sort of um, supervised, I guess, by the Mm mother-in-law. And that can cause a lot of conflicts. And she is very much tied to the household while the guy will go out and be the breadwinner. So there is evidence that, you know, things are changing in India as their society changes a little bit. But let's come to our country. Um, we found a really interesting New York Magazine article that featured a young woman who lived in New York City who was writing about the fact that she would might end up in an arranged marriage. You know, she started off very resistant to the idea, but she's met some of the people that her parents set her up with, and the article just sort of went over her responses to each person. Yeah, and the thing is, reading about her sort of uh, arranged marriage forays, it wasn't that much different than I imagine a lot of online dating and just dating in general to be. It wasn't, she wasn't just set up, you know, with one guy who she was supposed to go out with. She kind of bounced around from guy to guy and went on a number of different dates with a lot of different men who had all of the specific qualifications that her father in particular was looking for. Um, and kind of just seemed a lot similar to just basic dating, but just with a little more intention behind it. Because at one point she says, you know, it does take some pressure off the whole dating scenario because at least both me and the Indian guy I'm sitting across from know that we want something to end up in marriage. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't have to like beat around the bush as a lot of westernized dating today does. Right. Yeah. I mean, she kept calling it dating for dating sake. You know, you wouldn't just, you know, have one of those weird um, amorphous get togethers that's kind of a date, but kind of not. And you really don't know if you're on a date. You know, you know, you're on a date. You know that the guy eventually wants to get married. Uh, unlike, you know, you might meet a guy in, in this country and be like, yeah, I want to get married. And he doesn't tell you it's in, you know, 30 years. Yeah, it was funny. Uh, she says, when I go out on a first date with an Indian man, I find myself saying things I would never utter to an American. Like, I would expect my husband to fully share domestic chores. Undeniably, there's a lack of mystery to Indian-style dating because both parties are fully aware of what the end game should be. But with that also comes a certain relief. Mm-hmm. So I thought that that was uh, 
a pretty interesting perspective because like one uh, research paper that Molly and I were looking at points out, it's really easy from our very westernized perspective to immediately look at arranged marriages and cast a value judgment on it as something that is completely um, anti-feminist and wrong and should be abolished because what greater thing in life is there than love? <laughs> but as that research paper pointed out, the idea of marrying for love, such a new concept in the United States. And I think it's worth, you know, Kristen's gotten a lot of flack for in one podcast saying that we should totally abolish marriage. I think that you shouldn't say saying by joking. Yes, we Kristen, should abolish marriage. Kristen wants it made clear that she was actually, you know, not completely serious that she wants to get rid of marriage. Um, but I think that you were trying to get to an argument that we put too much emphasis on it and expect too much of it. And this, this subject kind of gets to the same thing as, you know, by trying to find someone you're 100% compatible with, as opposed to someone who just thinks the same way you do, wants to raise a family too, you know, is there a, a compromise to be struck between the two? Well, and the interesting thing is, and this is referring to a paper called Arranging Love by Mina Kandalwal. And the interesting thing is, if you look at the history of Western love marriage, and then you look at Eastern marriage, basically in the West, uh, quote unquote, love marriage did not really come about into regular practice until the 1800s with the rise of wage labor. It really took broad industrialization and capitalization and the Enlightenment ideals um, to uh, to actually like get couples out of parents, away from parents' purviews and mating on their own. Mm-hmm. And really, if you think about it, that's kind of the exact same thing in a very more modern sense that's going on in India. Mm-hmm. You have rapid industrialization, you have globalization, you have women and men from all societal um, levels making more money than ever before. And what do you know? Now you're having a rise in love marriage as well. Mm-hmm. So do you think that eventually India will look a little bit more like America with, with a greater number of love marriages? Or do you think that the violence and other obstacles with you know the difficulty of obtaining a divorce... Uh, the control that parents still exercise over their children. I mean, I was wondering if arranged marriages would would be going ex- extinct as the country continues to develop. Well, I don't think that arranged marriage would necessarily go extinct in terms of the emphasis on parental approval for mm-hmm. who you marry. Because that's one thing I think that we saw over and over again in a lot of these um, stories about men and women who would meet who might not be from the same caste, but they would still want to get parental approval because that family structure is so important in Indian culture, I would say even more so than in the United States. And Mina Kandawal makes a really interesting point that uh, – Indians and Americans simply discuss the idea of love in very different terms as well, because in Indian terms, it's uh, approached from more of a societal stance of what's good for the community, whereas in the United States, we think of it as more of what's good for me. How can I follow my own heart? Right. These two people, Mm -hmm. whereas, you know, we were talking a little bit before the podcast, where if you do kind of make that decision to marry another family this joint family agreement, you have so much more support. Yeah. Like, let's say you do have children, you've got all these extra people to help you with it. You have a whole community built in for for your family. Yeah, so I think in some ways there is something to be said for both a little bit of arrangement, a little bit of love. Maybe we could meet in the middle. Mm, I I like it. 
Yeah. But we don't want to say one way or the other what we think. And Kristen certainly doesn't want to suggest that we abolish love marriage again because the emails just keep coming. Yeah. So we want to know what you guys think, um, about arranged marriages, uh, pro, con experiences with them. We'd love to hear them. Um, so write us. Our email address is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And we will now go into some people who have written us at that address. And first off, we're not going to name you all by name. We want to thank all the people who know their geography better than Kristen and I do. Yes. And it is incorrect to say the Ukraine, as we did in our Mail Order Bride podcast. Evidently, we said the Ukraine over and over and over again, driving some listeners quite insane. And for that, we apologize, because if we had been talking about the Canada, uh, I'd be feeling real, real stupid right now. So kind of embarrassed. So yeah, a lesson for us all. No need to say the Ukraine anymore, people. It's, it's 2010. Just Drop the V. It's just Ukraine. Let's use it in a sentence. Hi, Molly. I think next week I'm going to go to Ukraine. That sounds like a pleasant trip, bringing back a souvenir from Ukraine. Okay. All right. So let's do another one. Uh, do you want to read this one, Kristen? Sure. All right. We've got one here from Hannah from California. She says, I'm writing you about your episode on Miss America and how that title was viewed by feminists as the opposite of the ideal woman. I counter this by saying that being beautiful and having physical talent doesn't make someone less of a woman than one that is politically involved in advocating civil rights. Also, who are feminists to decide what is or isn't an ideal woman? That statement alone seems sexist. I believe that we all have a purpose and something to give to this world, and many girls feel that showing their beauty, talents, and ability to have a great public image. If a girl wants to dance on stage in a bikini, that's her prerogative, and whether someone agrees with her actions or doesn't is really none of their concern. A, quote, feminist woman doesn't have any more right to judge what makes a real woman than a man. And may I just say, wise words from a 16-year-old? Yes. Thank you, Anna. I have an email uh, from Elise on the same podcast. She writes that, I think prospective Miss America should have to write an essay, give a speech, or do something to express their personal stories, beliefs, and thoughts. It would be nice for these girls to be able to vocalize what they believe and who they are as people. Speaking would show the intelligent side of some of the girls, or the really dumb ones would be ruled out. Or does that mean she questions? They would get to show more of themselves than just skin. The only problem is that whenever someone has an opinion, someone else will have another opinion that will not agree with the other person's opinion. And like we saw with the Miss California incident, we have problems accepting those who believe in ways that we don't. Freedom of speech is only as free as we let it be. And unfortunately, letting a woman express her opinions may offend someone, and we just can't have that, can we? Note the sarcasm in my voice, she writes, which I don't know if I did a great job with the sarcasm that was probably in her voice, but I tried. So that's the email from Elise. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks for writing in. Again, our email is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And during the week, you can head over to our blog. It's How To Stuff. And you can find a number of articles that Molly and I have written as well at the address howstuffworks.com. Want more How Stuff Works? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?